Our scripture passage today comes from John's Gospel, beginning in chapter 6, verse 52. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, so let us begin with a moment of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your spirit can guide us and illuminate it to our hearts, that we may have understanding. We pray that you would do that work in us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Before we get to our passage today, I wanted to start with an illustration, if you will. Somebody, talk about somebody you might be very familiar with or somewhat familiar with. I'm certain you probably know his name. That person is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is the chief author of the Declaration of Independence. He was the first Secretary of State for our country. He served as a vice president for a while. Eventually, he became the third president of the United States. He was a very learned individual. He was a lawyer uh, by education. He was very talented, accomplished musician, had an incredible library. Of course, was very successful and influential as our country began. But one of my favorite lectures I've ever sat through in my entire life was a history class. And it was basically a three-hour lecture tearing Thomas Jefferson to shreds. Because Thomas Jefferson is one of America, American history's greatest hypocrites. A couple examples of that. 
Now, he was a lawyer by education, and he is known for taking upon the case of a several slaves who were seeking to be emancipated from their slavery. He did that pro bono, didn't seek to get paid. He often spoke out against slavery, and yet, if you know who Thomas Jefferson is, you know he owned a massive plantation that had over 150 slaves that he never freed. In fact, beyond that, he even fathered a child with one of his slaves. Great hypocrite. Speaking out against something and yet in their own life doing the thing they speak against. Another way in which you see this in Thomas Jefferson's life is the way he spoke about the evils of debt. Just as it is in our day, the beginning of the country, there was a serious problem with the national debt, and Thomas Jefferson spoke about that often. But Thomas Jefferson lived in a really nice house called Monticello. You can go visit it today. It is extravagant. It's got all sorts of crazy plants that are imported from around the world. He had all sorts of animals. It was a, a wonder to see. Spared no expense building up his library. All of the things that would go into an opulent house. The man who spoke most viciously against debt died with over $100,000 in debt. And if you go back 250 years, that's a lot more money than it is now. He left no inheritance for his children. But most important to our passage today, most important to our faith that I want to highlight for us is something else Thomas Jefferson is known for. Some people call it the Jefferson Bible. He called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Thomas Jefferson took essentially the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he literally cut and pasted the things that he wanted to keep. Largely, the things he cut were the supernatural things, the miracles of Jesus, his resurrection, all of the things that a modernist, rational, enlightened man like Thomas Jefferson didn't think was reasonable. And so he didn't want to talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his miracles. Instead, it's the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. There's different reasons why somebody would do something like that. I don't know that we would necessarily take that same approach in our time. But there are things that, re- that often chafe against our own understanding of who God is. There are things in the Bible that are more comforting to us than others. There are things in the Bible that we might be embarrassed about. And the approach that Thomas Jefferson took was to just remove them. But in this passage, Jesus is getting to the point that following after him will require us to abandon any hope we have in anything else. Thomas Jefferson wanted to retain his sense of reasonableness. And so there's certainly something to be gained from Jesus. And we might want to have that same type of exchange. But it's important here that Jesus gets to the point there's nobody that's half in the kingdom of God. There's nobody who's half in and half out. There isn't a suburb outside of the kingdom of God where we can live and commute in when we need something from the kingdom. And yet, aren't we all prone to place our hope in other things? Aren't we all prone to that every day, in and out? 
to hope, or put our ultimate hope, our trust in things outside of Christ. We're told, uh, just to get you up to speed, if you haven't been here the past couple weeks, that's kind of an affront as you began reading this passage. It was immediately, as I was reading it out loud, struck me how vivid. Uh, So, just to give you a sense of where we've come from, Jesus fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. 20,000 people, including women and children, saw what he had done. We're told that they followed after Jesus because of the signs that they saw him doing on the sick. And then Jesus kind of runs away. They want to make him a king, and he goes and he hides up on a mountain. The disciples leave. Jesus also eventually leaves, walking across the water. And then he tells the people who've been following him that, really, you don't even follow me because of the signs. You're following me because you got food. And he begins this discourse about whether or not he's better than Moses, the, the man who brought bread down from heaven. And Jesus has been using this language of being the, the true bread of heaven, not like that bread that they ate in the wilderness and died, but bread that gives everlasting life. Jesus is continuing to point to himself as this source of life. And last week, we really focused in on this idea that he highlighted as how, we, how it is that we come to him. These people came to him for signs, for food, to find a king. But Jesus is saying people that come to him for those types of things ultimately won't stay because it's only the Father and the work of the Spirit that draws them to the Son. And so there is this hope in pursuing our selfish motives. Just like these people came because of the signs. They wanted a king that could do something for them. They wanted a king that could feed them. They wanted a king that seemed powerful and able to do things they could not do. And we see in this passage as Jesus doubles down on the imagery of him being the only source of life. And in fact, makes it very difficult for these people to understand what he is talking about. We see their response being one of wanting to be reasonable. Now, if we want to understand a bit of the controversy that's happening, as Jesus is saying these words, you don't have to do a lot uh, to get to the idea that eating a man's flesh and drinking his blood is a bit radical. And it would have been much more radical at that time. Dating back to as far as Noah, there was a prohibition that Noah gets off the ark and the Lord says, you can eat animals, but don't eat any meat that has blood in it because in the blood is the life. Of course, that's carried forward into the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The priests would oftentimes participate in the sacrifices, eating some of the meat. Even the people were allowed to participate in some of those feasts, but the blood was always reserved for the altar. It was the valuable part. It was the life. It was the thing that counted. It was the thing that showed that there was life given. It was the sacrifice of blood. And so the idea of drinking blood is abhorrent to the Jewish mind. In fact, it would have violated many of the ceremonial codes, not to mention just the idea of cannibalism being outright outright, uh, unthinkable. 
And as I come to this passage and think about the way in which we approach Jesus, sometimes I think we have the same idea as Thomas Jefferson. We want to be seen as reasonable. We want to be kind of middle of the road type Christians. That's especially true in our circles, the Presbyterian Church in America. They like to see themselves as being a third way. Sometimes people talk about the church as being, uh, you know, these crazy fundamentalists over here and these crazy liberals over here. And, and we're not like those people. We're, we have reasonable answers. Of course, there's always somebody to your right and there's always somebody to your left. And of course, Thomas Jefferson cut up a literal Bible, and maybe we don't do that, but we certainly, in our culture, in our churches, we have a tendency to do it in a more subtle way, ignoring difficult passages, dismissing the Old Testament, and highlighting the positive messages. Do we not? Who doesn't want to hear about God's love, the possibility of forgiveness of sins through Christ? But who wants to hear about God's wrath and judgment? And so, maybe not physically, we also take this approach of wanting to seem reasonable. That if we could explain it in a way that's more reasonable, more calculated, people might also agree with the things we, agree, we believe. And yet, Christ is coming here and saying, being reasonable... Seeking me for any of these other things, none of that really matters. The flesh is of no value. It's only the Father that draws people to him. And the people that the Father draws to Christ, they don't believe in just a little bit of him. They don't just believe in the positive aspects of him. They don't just believe in his ability to do signs. They believe in the full Christ. See, the full counsel of God's word will always rub against our sin it will always rub against our presumptions about how God works. We have limited understanding, and God's word will always rub against the changing values in any country, at any time, anywhere in the world. And as Jesus is talking here to these men, he seems to be making it harder and harder and harder for them to come to him. They didn't understand about the sign of the bread being broken. They didn't understand what it pointed to. They didn't understand as he was talking about being the bread of life. And now he just goes wild. Uses imagery that would have been so shocking to them. They don't understand. And he doesn't really take the time to explain. One way in which... God's word can rub up against us, especially as we think last week about the idea of God drawing people to his son, is our idea of fairness. And if the father draws people to the son but doesn't draw other people, that's not really fair. If God is in control and these things are happening, that's not really fair. Our idea of fairness doesn't seem to compute with some of the things we learn about who God is. Romans chapter 9 addresses this particular question well. It says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so Isaac and Rebekah, patriarchs of Israel, though they had not yet been born and had done neither good nor evil, 
She's pregnant with twins. They hadn't done anything. They haven't been born yet. They haven't done anything good or anything evil. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, which would have been a reversal of what you would expect in this culture. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Strong words of God making a declaration about these two brothers before they've ever done anything good or bad. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the question we often have. Is it fair, is it fair for God to do that? Is there injustice on God's part? Apostle Paul reminds us, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not the answer that we would expect or hope for as we enter into this very difficult question. We would like to get a reasonable response that, well, God knew that this was going to happen, and so maybe you can't see it, but this is really why he did those things. Paul belabors the point here that it had nothing to do with them doing good or evil. The answer he comes back to here and in other places, he is God. He will do what he will. In fact, the idea of mercy is one that wasn't even in our mind. We thought they both deserved God's favor, and yet here we see God has decided to show mercy to one. And he should be praised for doing such a glorious thing. But see, there's a difference in how we approach God. Sometimes we approach him as we are the ones who are the arbiters of what is good, right, true. And we judge God by some standard rather than being drawn to him and submitting to the things that he has said. This is just one of the hard sayings throughout Scripture. And in this passage, we're told that this saying to the disciples, to the people who gathered there, they said, this is a hard saying. It seems like Jesus is using this opportunity to drive away all of those who are following after him for the wrong reasons. All of those who are not called by the Father are going to turn away because of what he said is so atrocious. At least to their minds. We're told in verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, you cannot say things like that. Jesus knew about they were, they were grumbling. He says, do you take offense at this? What if you were to see me for who I really am? What if you were to see me to ascend to where I was? What if you weren't just looking me at me as this man who's saying some things that maybe seem a bit extreme, but instead you understood that I am divine? But it's the spirit who gives life. Not the flesh is of no help at all. Those people who are trying to understand in an earthly understanding, an earthly way, without the work of God's Spirit, they will never understand. Jesus knows that, and so this crowd who is continuing to follow him and to try to seek to make him do things for them, he is trying to dispel. You see, lack of belief is not rooted in an unreasonableness. Lack of belief is rooted in a far greater reality. 
because we can only believe by the power of the Spirit. We can only believe if the Father teaches us. That's what he went into last week. That's what he's reiterating here again. He says here, that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And true belief cannot be found apart from the working of God's Spirit. Think about the different interactions Jesus has had thus far in John. Nicodemus comes to him at night and he says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. How am I going to be born again? He must be born in the water and the spirit. He must be, have this new birth. And, and Nicodemus just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. The spirit had not given him the ability to understand, to believe in the things that Jesus was saying. And so he leaves confused. And then we have this other instance where the woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus is talking about water. And the water that he's going to give will well up to eternal life. They'll never thirst again. But she gets it. And she goes and tells other people that truly this is the Christ, the one who's to come. Because the Spirit was at work. Both of them are shadowed, veiled understandings of God's work. And yet, it's the Spirit's work that is the difference maker. And so it is with this passage. Jesus' body and blood is the bread from heaven. And without the Spirit illuminating it to the ears and the hearts of those listeners, it's just offensive. Because we're just thinking in earthly terms. But really, we're left with one answer here from the Apostle Peter, as people are leaving, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. So think about this crowd. You kind of have the multitude. You have some religious leaders, they're often called the Jews in this passage. Then you have his disciples, and then you have the twelve, the ones that first followed Jesus, the ones he called to himself. So the multitude is gone. The Jews have been offended enough to leave. His disciples, many of them, have turned away. And Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and says to them, Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? They probably did. (laughs) Probably seemed like this whole show just came to a screeching halt. 20,000 people... Man, this thing has taken off. Jesus is doing some great things, and now he has scared them all away. And offended us. Simon Peter answers him, saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Of course, there's even in this inner circle of Jesus, it's being highlighted that there are those who are not truly called. Even Jesus knows the man he called, Judas, to be part of his inner circle, will ultimately betray him. But this confession from the lips of Peter is where we must land. To whom shall we go? We all place our hopes in other things. I said that earlier on, and yet all of those things will fail us at some point in our lives. 
when all of these other pursuits fail us, the relationships we're in, our family members, our jobs, our success, the lives we're building for ourselves, when they begin to crumble, to whom shall we go? When God's word says something that's hard to hear, hard to understand, when it's convicting to our sin, to whom shall we go? When we face hardships, trials, persecution, every week we pray for the persecuted church during our worship service. People who are literally losing everything, their lives, their loved ones, their churches, their jobs. To whom shall they go? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Tough words. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall from the ground, to the ground apart from your father. Not even the hairs from your head are numbered. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than of many sparrows. For everyone who acknowledges before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will deny my Father before my Father who is in heaven. Our life circumstances, even death itself, is not something that we are ultimately tied to. Our ultimate hope must be able to transcend our current reality. Our current situation, our current life, even death itself. And that is the promise that Jesus makes here in this passage and in many others. Some of my favorite uh, internet personalities are currently going through a series where they're talking about the deconstruction of their faith. They used to be evangelical Christians and now they're whatever. No longer believe those things. And that's truly what apostasy looks like. Not a vitriol hate necessarily for the things of God, but just a willingness to be content with maybe a halfway Jesus, maybe just the moral teachings of Jesus, like Thomas Jefferson, maybe Jesus one day a week. Maybe just the positive things that Jesus does. It looks like being content to leave the words of Jesus as optional. It's content to do things on our own, to feel like our hope on ourselves and our own abilities is enough. Content to live through the faith of others. Content to live in a place of hope in anything else. Jesus tells us in this passage, if we aren't in, 100% in the kingdom, feasting on his body and his blood, then we have no life. I don't know if you've ever hit the end of your rope. Some theologians and people say, the dark night of the soul, where nothing seems to matter anymore. You don't understand your circumstances. You don't 
know what you believe. You don't know if life is worth moving on with. This is the passage you need to go to. Because this is the only confession that will sustain us. Lord, to whom shall we go? I have nowhere else to go. Because you have the words of eternal life. Despite my circumstances, despite all of the things that have failed me, despite all of the hardship, despite death itself, I have no hope in anything else to sustain me through this. It's the only rock that we can build our lives and our faith on. It's a confession of the source of true life. Jesus is our only hope. He's the only way that we can be drawn near to God. And he's the only one that can give us life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ being the sacrifice to give us life, that in his body and blood, in his death, we find life. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our doubts. Help us in our hopes of other things to trust in him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.